Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com you're the mom the maid the keeper of the cookies you do it all and you look good doing it it's parenthood on a mother level here's your host denise hanitka Hello, everyone. I'm Denise Sinitka, and you are listening to episode 99 of On a Mother Level. I am so happy to introduce you to our guest this week. Her name is Diane Coster. I was introduced to Diane when she spoke a couple weeks ago at that Gilda's Club event that I went to, and she spoke about her daughter, Lindsay, who died at 28 years old from something called inflammatory breast cancer. And I was really touched by Diane's story and a little confused because I'd never heard of inflammatory breast cancer, and in particular, in such a young woman. She was just 28 years old, and what Diane will tell you, which I think is an important message to hear, is that it presents differently than breast cancer that you've heard of. You know, we're always told to check for lumps. Well, this kind of cancer presents differently. It almost reminds me of what mastitis feels like. And I know a lot of you listening have dealt with that when you've been nursing your babies. So I thought this was an important message to tell you about Diane and her daughter and what they went through. So inflammatory breast cancer, I found out, is a less common form of breast cancer. It gets its name because it causes symptoms that are similar to a breast infection, like a mastitis. The symptoms include redness, tenderness, swelling, and pain in the breast. However, unlike an infection, it obviously will not go away with an antibiotic. Inflammatory breast cancer makes up an estimated of only 1% to 5% of all breast cancers. The disease typically occurs in women younger than 40. Lindsay was 28. Black women seem to have a higher risk for inflammatory breast cancer. Inflammatory breast cancer can happen in men, but men are typically older when they're diagnosed compared with women. Now, because inflammatory breast cancer can grow and spread quickly, this cancer often spreads to the lymph nodes around the breast. This means it's usually at a locally advanced stage when it's first diagnosed because the cancer cells have grown into the skin. For about one out of three people with inflammatory breast cancer, the cancer has already spread to distant parts of the body when first diagnosed. Diane Coster wrote a book about her experiences helping her daughter through breast cancer. It's called Lindsay's Legacy, A Mother's Memories. Lindsay was diagnosed at the age of 28, as I've been saying, and she died just 10 months later. During the process, Lindsay documented her journey through a series of online posts, keeping her friends and family members informed and educated along the way. And as Diane says, it helped her kind of process what was going through as well. So Diane took all those posts, added some more context and perspective, and turned it into the book that's available right now on Amazon. Again, it's called Lindsay's Legacy a mother's memories. And so I invited Diane to share her story. And I started by asking her about that presentation that she gave to Gilda's Club and how giving speeches like that and talking about Lindsay is part of the grieving process. I want to make sure that 
anybody and everybody who'll listen knows what inflammatory breast cancer is, how it's different from what you might call a traditional breast cancer and raise awareness as much as possible. So I, 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 I'll talk about Lindsay and about her journey wherever, whenever, and at any time that anybody ever wants to talk about it. That's kind of my passion right now. That's my goal. Um, that's what I've been doing since we lost her almost five years ago. And <laughs> yes, it's always very hard to talk about it. And I kind of kick myself and get mad at myself because I don't hold it together. I never can, whether it's one-on-one -on -one with somebody or whether it's a small rotary group that I'm speaking with or whether it's like the other night where there were, I don't know, 300 people there. I, I can never prepare myself enough. I'm not scared or nervous really because this is easy for me to talk about on one hand because I lived it, but it's so hard to relive it. And yeah, I just miss her. <laughs> well, you you lived it and you speak about it. And you, you kind of did the deep dive of it in putting together your book. Yeah, because Lindsay felt it was so important to document her journey, which she wrote her experiences as often as she could when she felt up to it. And as long as she could, she felt it was important to have one place where everybody could go to and read what was happening to her at that time. And hopefully some time down the road, somebody would come across her writing and connect to it and understand that even though you're battling this huge battle, you should always have hope and have faith that things are going to be okay. So I just knew that af after she passed away, just 10 short months after being diagnosed, that I needed to carry that on. And I have a granddaughter who is Lindsay's niece, who was born right before she was diagnosed and she turned one just a week before Lindsay died. And she was everything to her. And for her benefit, I wanted to have this tangible reminder of not only Lindsay's journey, but her courage and her strength. And I was able to integrate some history about her to give people a flavor of who Lindsay was. And for her to have that when she's older and can understand it, but also for all of Lindsay's close friends and all of our family members. And now um, I'm finding people outside of our immediate circle are, are getting the book and reading the book, including other women who are going through inflammatory breast cancer. And I had a little bit of fear about that and whether or not it would be something that an individual would want to, as they were going through the same thing that Lindsay went through and ultimately didn't survive. I mean, it, the story doesn't have a happy ending. And I've heard from women that are going through inflammatory breast cancer about how it was very uplifting to them, how they connected to what Lindsay was going through. And also it gave them per the perspective of what their family was. Okay. So in that sense, it's, it's done more than I ever expected it to do and reached more people in a way that is meaningful than I ever anticipated. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. So in your medical expertise, you know, in your professional career, you said you had done mammograms and things uh -huh. like that, but overall, what would you say your general knowledge of breast cancer was walking into this? Um, I would say I thought it was really good knowledge. I, I know what the guidelines are for screenings or cancer screenings for women. I can actually visualize what could be cancer on a mammogram. I know what that looks like. I know that, or I knew <laughs> that most um, breast cancers in their early stages, but you know, even in their later stages are going to present with some sort of a lump or something you can palpate. And Lindsay's wasn't. So in the back of my mind, after we started hearing about inflammatory breast cancer and, Li and Lindsay started doing some research and discovering that maybe this was what it was, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you know, I kind of remember hearing about those types of symptoms, but I never made the connection. I knew that when they said they were going to send her for a biopsy, there was going to be something there, even though I kept saying to her and to myself, it's going to be fine. There's no way this is breast cancer of any type, but it was. 
and that's the only way they can actually diagnose it. It doesn't usually show up on a mammogram, except for maybe some thickening of the, the skin. There's not the clustering of the cells like you would see in a, a lump type of a breast cancer, because this is um, the cells within the ductal system, and then it it goes into the skin. So it's really the skin that's telling you this. So my my advice now, in addition to getting your mammograms when you're supposed to, is just being aware of changes. You know, be aware of changes of any sort with your body. But in this circumstance, you know, if there's a change in your breast, one or the other, generally if it's both sides, it's probably not a cancer. There's probably something else internally going on with you. But if you're seeing redness or a rash, or having um, an inverted nipple all of a sudden, or something just funny just starts happening for no apparent reason, get it checked, get it checked. Call your doctor and get it checked. So in Lindsay's case, 28 years old, no bug bite, no trauma to the breast that we could think of. All of a sudden it's red, warm to the touch, tender. And then each day it just kept getting worse. Almost like a mastitis that maybe a nursing mother would experience. Well, Lindsay has no children. She's never had had that situation where she was nursing, but it presents like a mastitis. And so um, without visually checking it, she was given an antibiotic and she was on two rounds. She had just changed jobs and did not have insurance. And um, somebody close to the family who has the ability to prescribe an antibiotic did so. And that was the first steps. And then when she finally saw a doctor, they just agreed and, and re-upped the antibiotic. And then after the two rounds, when it didn't make any sort of difference and it was just getting worse, they sent her for the biopsy. Lindsay didn't do anything that anybody else in the same situation wouldn't have done. Absolutely. I mean, you're 28, mm -hmm. you're um, healthy, yeah. you're fairly invincible, mm -hmm. you know, and you're like, ah, this is a, this pesky rash. Yeah. To me, that feels very, very relatable. Absolutely. Take a quick round of antibiotics and, and fix this thing and go back on about your business. Just got a new job. I don't have time for this. Right. You try to keep moving. Exactly. Busy life. She just bought a house. She had a puppy. She was helping my husband and I at our newly purchased small business. You know, when she was living the life of a 28-year-old. Um, yeah. Unattached, you know, single, young career woman. And she would stop and pull me into a room like I... I wrote in the book she, and she'll lift her shirt up and go, cause that's how Lindsay was. She'd be like, mom, look at this. What is, you know, <laughs> and that at that point in, in, you know, hindsight, that didn't occur to me at all that it could have been a breast cancer. Yeah. yeah. And that those extra two weeks, would that have made a difference in her treatment or, or um, the outcome? No, it wouldn't have, unfortunately, especially in her case, because all of her hormone receptors were negative which means that there are no specific treatments that they can target for that type of triple negative breast cancer, um, which just made it all the more rare um, and all the more harder to treat. So when those antibiotics didn't work and she saw a doctor, what did that doctor say? What happened next? Well, that's when they immediately sent her for the biopsy. I mean, like the same day. Okay, right away. Yeah. And then by the next day, they were calling. And this is this is the protocol at the, the health system. If you get a breast biopsy, which is called the diagnostic test for breast imaging, they won't give you the results. You have to go to a surgeon, a breast surgeon. That's the way they give you the results, good, bad, or otherwise. You are directed to an appointment with a breast surgeon, and then they give you the results. That's intense. It is. So, you know, all of those things multiplied over a period of 24 hours, you're just like, okay, this isn't good. <laughs> this isn't good. But then when you hear that it's the rarest, most aggressive, highly fatal type of breast cancer that you're not expecting at all. So when did she get that news? How long? Um, her diagnosis was made on April 18th of 2016, and she had just started having the symptoms about four weeks before that. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In mid-March. Yep. So what was her mindset like at this time? This has all happened really fast for her. She told me afterwards, she goes, mom, I knew that's what it was because she's a big internet person. And just like anybody that age, they're online, they're searching stuff, they're searching symptoms. And she knew that this was a bad diagnosis. 
that it was probably the worst thing they could have told her um, with regards to a breast cancer. You know, Lindsay was really good at putting on a smiling face and being positive throughout this whole thing, especially right at the beginning. We were sitting in the surgeon's office, somebody we didn't know, but one of her stepsisters actually worked for this surgeon. She's a nurse. And so she was in the room with Lindsay and myself and Lindsay's dad. Um, and we've been divorced for quite a bit, but so it was just the four of us. And he looked at her and said, it's breast cancer. And I'm pretty sure it's inflammatory breast cancer. And of course there are more, a few more tests they had to do, like look at the biopsy under and stage it and all that stuff. And she started crying. And of course I was I was just in shock and she looked at him and if you've ever seen a picture of Lindsay, she had the most gorgeous head of blonde hair. I don't know where she got it. She didn't get it from me, <laughs> but oh my gosh, her hair was everything. And not unlike many young women at that age, they're very into their looks and, you know, always looking perfect and makeup and hair and, you know, the outfit, fashionista all the way. And her first question was, am I going to lose my hair? And that was the thing that came to her mind. And he said, well, we're going to have to talk about different options once we know the extent of the cancer. And then she said, am I going to die? Because she knew that were the odds. Um, although she did know somebody that still to this day is living who had inflammatory breast cancer. But most of the people she read about when she was looking online had passed away. And one of the things she wrote after she got her diagnosed on her page was, I'm gonna be the one in the million. And she put her faith in God and in the doctors who did everything they could given the situation, being the triple negative. They basically threw everything at her that they could. And it was really hard on her, the side effects of all the, and it went bam, 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 bam. Every day there was something different. The treatment would work for a while. And then the cancer outsmarted it. Let's try something else. Let's go talk to this doctor at Northwestern in Chicago. Let's go talk to this doctor at the University of Iowa. Nobody told our local oncologist to do anything different. He was doing exactly what he could. And Lindsay really felt comfortable and confident in her tra treatment plan. But every time it looked like it was maybe responding, then it would stop. Hmm. So to expand on what I was saying with her, outside persona and in her writing, being always positive and trying to smile and, you know, oh my gosh, I saw the other side of her. And I knew that she needed to be able to express that, her, her anger. It's like, it's going through a grief process, really it is. Yeah. And I knew that she was taking it out on me in many ways. Um, most of the time she treated me fine. <laughs> she was very appreciative of everything I did for her. Um, but, oh boy, there were days that were bad. And early on, there were a lot of times she just wanted to be alone and she still was healthy enough. to. But as it progressed, that was the hardest thing for her because she was so independent and she was so what she described herself as type A. She always had to be in control of everything, which made her very successful in her job. Um, she always had a clear plan. She always followed the plan. She always knew what she was going to do next. Um, and to have all of that taken away, literally, little by little, it all was stripped away from her through this journey. And it was really hard on her. So you were her caregiver through a lot of this process. Yeah. I, she, again, she's single. She owned her own home that she had just bought that fall ahead of that. And, uh, there wasn't anybody else that could do it. And she, I knew she wanted to stay as independent as she could stay in her home. And, you know, there were times she had to be in the hospital, but she always went back home. Um, she wrote about how, as her illness progressed, she always wondered if that bout, that time in the hospital would be the last time, or if she'd ever go home again. She always did go home and she died at home um, with me there holding her. If not me, who else was going to do it? Yeah, you know, I had the flexibility because again, we had just bought this business and we had staff that could cover. And my husband, Kevin, at that time worked for a bank that was very flexible with him too. If he had to, you know, if we went to the doctor for the regular checkup and he's like, we need to send you right now to get an MRI of your brain because you're having headaches. You know, it was just every day there was something different. And 
your plan for the day got altered. And so having the people, you know, making sure everything else was going like it needed to, you know, get our dogs taken care of at home, you know, have the store open and closed and, and waiting on customers when I couldn't be there. And whereas just a few months before in my prior job, I would have had to quit my job um, because yeah. she had to have, you know, she pretty, pretty soon she couldn't drive um, and she hated that. And then pretty soon, you know, she, she needed me to make sure she's taking all her medicine correctly, the schedule. And then, you know, progressively and progressively, I just needed to be living with her. I stayed with her in her home. Um, first, I was in the bedroom downstairs. Then as her illness progressed, we, we moved upstairs and I just did what I had to do. There just wasn't a lot of time. No, there wasn't a lot of time for you to react. Not really. Um, to get your head wrapped around it, and it sounds like you just moved on instinct always. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And now, almost five years later, it's it's like, how did we all survive this? Dealing with what Lindsay was going through and still functioning and not like being committed. <laughs> There were, there were really tough times, um, obviously. I mean, that goes without saying, I think, but. As her mom, I'm just wondering, you're, you were watching her in the peak of her young adult life. You know, it sounds like all the pieces were falling into place for her as a young woman. And it just, this just fell like a thud on all of that. Absolutely. I always tell people about when I talk about Lindsay and when she was little, I always say Lindsay never grew out of her terrible twos until she was 21, maybe. <laughs> I mean, she was a handful, especially, I mean, when your parents divorce, even though it's amicable and you're both, you know, in the same town, sometimes you can act out in ways that people kind of overlook because of the situation, including one or both of the parents. And she had her moments. Oh boy. I mean, her friends could tell you stories things that we never knew were going on when she was in junior high and high school. And, and she was mad at me for many years. She had huge, and I think moms and daughters go through that anyway. Oh, of course. But I was kind of between the two parents. I was a little more of the, the strict one. And my ex-husband was more like her friend. And, you know, I'm not trying to diminish anything and he's a great dad. And, um, but she knew how to play that. And she, you know, would try to not be around me more than him, maybe because she knew she could get away with more. I don't know. But yeah, there was that butting of heads were so much alike, butting of heads for years and years and years and years. And, you know, she had graduated from college and I, one of my good friends was the GM at, at Hotel Blackhawk. And um, that's really what she wanted to do was get into the hospitality industry. Her, her degree was in English. And which made her such a great writer, which is why it's so easy to read what she wrote and to really connect with her when you read her words. But I, I, I helped her connect with, with Tim at the Hotel Blackhawk and he hired her. She worked there for almost five years and just was an amazing leader in her position. And she became a young leader in the community and she followed in her mom's footsteps I would like to think because I was 20 years in nonprofit fundraising. So that had a lot to do with relationship building and marketing and um, getting out there in the community. And she was doing that. And I just couldn't have been happier than when I saw this progression from, oh, you're Lindsay Thal, Diane Coster's your mom, or you're, you're Diane Coster's daughter, to Lindsay, I didn't know Diane Coster was your mom because she was making it on her own and she was making a name for herself and really it wasn't she was my daughter anymore it was like oh you're her mom and I couldn't have been more proud or happy when that when that happened so she really was hitting her stride and had just bought the house I said and she wanted a four-bedroom house so she had her room she had a, a an office space she had a spare room and then she had a room she literally turned into a walk-in closet because that's what brilliant <laughs> brilliant I love happy. it that was her baby and she was she was happy she was living life she she had really um recently gotten out of a um emotionally abusive relationship which again in hindsight the stress of her job and that 
could have actually helped lead to her cancer. And there are a lot of lines of thought on that as far as what stress does to your body. And uh, she, she dealt with a lot in her young life. You probably do this a lot where you just break down all these little moments mm-hmm. and break down, you know, how you felt in it. And, and there's just, I imagine that's what grief is like in a daily process is some days there's, there's regrets and some days there's wondering what could have been, should have been different. Mm-hmm. That's grief. Absolutely. And I really accepted the thought and the idea that it's never going to go away. I'm going to be living with this the rest of my life and that's okay. And I think it's gotten better. Like you said, there's some things that have happened along the way that have really been cathartic in my healing, in my grief. Um, and that, you know, was writing the book. Obviously that was huge. I couldn't start putting that all together until I started actually the day of the second anniversary of her death. Okay. So there were two full years that went by, which I don't even remember, to be honest, um, before I could even start writing, but I knew that's what I was going to do. I knew I had to do it. And it's almost like I kept putting it off because I knew it was going to be really, really hard, but as hard as it was reliving that time, it was very cathartic. Had you been reading her updates all along through the process? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So then when you're reading them again, two years later, they probably read different. You probably learned something, even though you'd followed it so closely. The thing was, every time we went to the doctor, I was always making notes. And then I would take a picture on my phone and send it to her. So when she started writing her blog that night, she could get she could pull from my notes exactly what the doctors were saying and what the steps were going to be. So together we did it. Um, She wanted to be able to communicate it to her dad, who very rarely was at the appointments because he's a a medical professional himself and has patients himself. He can't just leave. So for that purpose, she wanted to be able to accurately describe what was going on in in her posts, as well as communicate to the close family what was going on. And she wanted to understand it herself. And I think writing it over and kind of explaining it kind of helped her process to what was, what was going on and maybe what the next steps were going to be, because that was so important to her, even though the direction got changed so many times, the recipes with her chemo, you know, she talks about the recipes and how he tries one recipe and then he changes the rest. It's just all these different turns and um, ups and downs and roller coaster rides and craziness. Yes, reading them again was completely different. And then I had to really dig not only in my memory, but also through my Facebook, through my, um, my phone calendar. What else, what, what was going on at that time that she didn't mention maybe in her post? What was happening behind the scenes? Or what else can I add to this that, that would um, you know complete kind of the picture of what was happening that day? or that week. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of that digging back into old, you know, wherever you have your memory, not only in your memory, but, you know, written somewhere, or, you know, I might've made a Facebook post that day or something. Um, so, I mean, even like when her friend Deanna ran the marathon that fall during her illness, and she had promised her that she would be there for her that day when she crossed the finish line, because Deanna was training for this and running it for Lindsay. And she did um, daily training updates that she went like Facebook live or something. And she would, I mean, she was so dedicated to this, Deanna was. So Lindsay was bound and determined to be there. And that day, she wasn't feeling well, which happened a lot. You never knew what the day was going to be like. But she said, mom, you got to take me. We got to go. I've got to be at the finish line for Deanna. And she was. And she didn't really expound upon that day or, or leading up to that day much in her writing. So that's where I felt the responsibility to fill in the blanks. So that's yeah. kind of what I did throughout that whole 10 month process. Did Deanna's run mean a lot to Lindsay? Oh my gosh, it meant the world to her. And I just happened to pull out my phone and capture a picture of Deanna crossing the finish line. And then I did a little video. Lindsay was yelling, Deanna, because I think at the end of a marathon, you're really not totally with it. And you can't really... <laughs> yeah you know, find your friends in, in the crowd at the finish line. But 
So then she, Deanna quickly veered off to the left, right towards Lindsay, and they just grabbed each other. Why do you think that meant so much? Lindsay saw how hard Deanna worked to accomplish this. She has an autoimmune disease. She is not an extremely healthy person herself in general. So this was tough for her, really hard. But even in her recordings during her training sessions, when she would broadcast it to the world, she said, if Lindsay can do what she's doing right now and go through what she's going through, I can do. So I think it gave, they gave each other um, some emotional support and they just knew they were um, both fighting a fight, but that's how they've, they've always been since they've been friends. Another example of that is she met Deanna when they both worked at the Hotel Blackhawk and there was a fundraiser, which still happens now. It's repelling down the side of the hotel. Oh, yeah. I think it's Big Brothers, Big Sisters. Lindsay, yeah, I think you're right. Lindsay, extremely afraid of heights, but she and Deanna dedicated themselves to doing this project and they raised their money for the organization. And that day they both repelled down and it was a huge accomplishment, especially for Lindsay because of her fear of heights, but I'm sure it was for Deanna too, but they together did it. And that just is, and that was before her illness. So that just kind of um, gives an example of their relationship and how they always supported each other and had each other's backs. Yeah, yeah. So at what point, did it become clear that treatments were not going to work? It probably was before the doctor ever verbalized it. Um, you know, as far as a time frame, probably six weeks before she actually died, they had okay. really exhausted all the treatment options. And when they redid a scan and they saw that it had spread to some other major organs, and her oncologist sat her down, and I think she expected it, and said, I don't think there's anything else we can do. You know, we could try, and then he's like, we could try, but I just think it's going to make you more uncomfortable, and I don't think it's going to help extend your life further, and um, that was a tough, that was a tough day, but it's like you heard what you knew you were going, you knew it. She had a couple things coming up that she didn't want to miss, she wanted to be here for, so I think she made herself stay on this earth so that she could get through. Um, first thing was uh, like the, the day after she got this news from the doctor, one of her really good friends had organized this huge trivia event as a fundraiser for her. There were several fundraisers that people did for her along the way that helped her pay her mortgage and just her expenses. She lost her job. Obviously, that happens a lot when people are going through cancer treatment. And um, so this big, and I swear to God, I've been in fundraising forever. I've never seen a trivia event this well um, attended. The participation was amazing. And everywhere you look, there was a table of a group of people that were, that knew our family in one way or another, or knew Lindsay in one way or another. It was just heartwarming. So she wanted to make it through that. And she wanted to make an appearance, which was hard for her. She actually should have gone in a wheelchair. We had the wheelchair in the back of the car and we got out at the facility. She goes, nope, nope, I'm going to walk in. So then all of a sudden she's looking at the auction stuff, trying to get it all organized. I'm just like, oh my God, <laughs> trying to be in charge and be like her mom and get everything organized and start telling people what to do. And um, so she stayed as long as she could, which wasn't long. And we took her back home. And that was in early January, I think. Oh, no, no. I have to back up because she wanted to make it through Christmas first. That was her first thing that she did. She was feeling pretty good through Christmas. Um, and then it was going to be Audrey's first birthday on January 24th. And so that was the third thing. And um, she was there at the birthday party again, not feeling very good. You could see it. You can even see it now in pictures, how ashen her face was and how thin her face had come. And, uh, but she was there and loving on Audrey and, my parents were there, which my, my parents now are in their upper 90s. So, you know, five years ago, they were still healthy enough to travel to the Quad Cities. And there's a, a sweet picture of the two, my grandparents, my parents on either side of Lindsay on the couch. And my mom had brought her a prayer shawl from their church. She had that wrapped around her. 
And of course, that was last time that they they saw her, or you know, many of our relatives saw her because she died on February 1st. So it was just like a week later. Um, so yeah, that last week, very little eating, increasing, increasing, increasing pain meds. You know, she liked the TV on, even though she wasn't watching it. She just liked to have that sound in the background. When she was sleeping and under the pain meds, she would be making a lot of noises. And I'd be in the next room and I'd check on her every once in a while. And sometimes it would stop for a minute or two. And then I'd be like, oh my gosh. And then I'd go in and she was still with us and talking. And, and then my the day before Lindsay died, I had no idea. We, you, that's the thing Lindsay always asked, am I going to know? Am I going to know that it's going to happen? I don't know. <laughs> the hospice people couldn't answer that either. She wanted to know what was going to happen next, um, which I guess all, all of us would in that situation. My daughter-in-law, my son's wife, had to go. She was scheduled to go on a business trip. And I know she had some hard conversations with my son, Nick. And Tara's like, Nick, I don't want to go because what if Lindsay dies? And um, I had talked to the oncologist and he, and he said, you know, I'm, I'm pretty confident. She probably has at least another week. And so Tara gets on this plane and travels. And then um, the oncologist, he actually came to see her um, that day at home because she was in her hospital bed at her home because we made every accommodation for her that we could to keep her at home. He, she was joking with him and her dog Lola was up on, her, up on the bed with her. And he, the doctor was playing with the dog and um, licking him and stuff and, and his staff told me he never, he never does home visits like this. And uh, he came out of a room. I was out in the living room talking to the hospice nurse and I didn't even know how to ask the question, but he knew what I wanted to know. And he, he said, I think, you know, it won't be long. It'll probably, probably be about a week. And I said, well, is there any way I can know? I don't want to be here by myself when this happens. He said, no, there really isn't. But you know, the, the hospice nurse is just a call away and they were amazing. So they left and I called my, my son and I called my, Lindsay's dad and I told him what he had said. And my son, Nick was like, oh, mom, I just, I'm just kicking myself. Maybe I should have told Tara not to go. I said, no, Nick, it should, it should be fine. It should, I'm sure it'll be okay. Um, but they had, they had all just talked to her. They'd all been there and spent one-on-one -on -one time with her just the day before. And uh, more, it was after midnight, it was about two in the morning. I heard Lindsay getting up out of her hospital bed. Oh my gosh. So I rush in there in time to like catch her. And she's like hooked up to IV with the morphine and she's got oxygen tubes in her nose. And I grab her and I pivot her onto this that's next to her dresser. And she's going through this process apparently of her body shutting down and she's reaching out. And it just occurred to me that this was it. She was dying. And I just held her and made sure she didn't fall over. And I just held her. Said, Mommy's here. It's okay. Reaching out, like she was reaching out to God or Jesus. And pretty soon she took a breath. And it was a while before she took another breath and then she just stopped breathing. All her body weight was just in my arms. And I feel so blessed that I was able to be there with her at that moment. And I knew she was ready and I knew that she was gonna be okay. There was nobody there was my biggest fear. So here I am holding my daughter in my arms, trying not to let her fall. I didn't have my phone. I couldn't reach anything. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? This was so, to me, was very unexpected because the doctor had just told me a few hours ago that it was going to, I was going to have a little more time and she was going to have a little more time, but she, she was ready. And I wrote about this in the book. So it's, it's kind of hard to, for probably for anybody to hear this, but what do you do in that situation? And the doors are locked and I've got to take care of this now. What do I do? So I made sure she wasn't going to fall to the floor. And I, my phone, I believe was over on the chair next to the bed. So then I was able to grab my phone 
and I can't even remember who I called first, whether it was my husband or my ex-husband, one of them, I called them both as I'm running downstairs to get the door unlocked so they could get in. And they both came and, you know, we, we lowered her to the floor. We couldn't lift her up onto the bed. Um, and I just stayed with her till the hospice folks came and I just could feel her in the room still. Like she was watching and I knew that she would want us to make sure she was covered up and comfortable. And Lola, her dog, came running in the room and jumped on her and was licking her face. And I knew she would like that. But I just felt her still there in the room. And it was hard. It was nothing any parent should have to go through. And of course, Tara, my daughter-in-law, felt so bad for her. She got back as soon as she could. And very quickly, actually, she was back home that afternoon, but um, she wished she hadn't left, but it wouldn't have mattered. It didn't make any difference. Um, nobody was there but me. I can't imagine a parent losing a child without the opportunity to spend time with them at the end of their life. And I just feel so blessed that I was able to. I can't imagine a parent losing a child in an accident or in any way without any warning. I just, I just know how difficult it was for me. And I had that time with her. Diane, I'm, thank you. Thank you. And I'm, and I'm sorry, I'm making this harder. I just, I just want to acknowledge all that you went through and you're such a good mom. I just want you to know that. Thank you. I just don't believe that I did anything any mom wouldn't have done in my same situation. I don't think I'm special in any way. I truly believe that the love between a mother and a child is so strong in that anybody who would have been going through the same thing wouldn't have done anything any different. You know, that's just a very mom thing to say. <laughs> you know, we say that to ourselves all day long, that we're just doing what we're supposed to do, but that dismisses the fact that you were trying to be strong for your daughter when you probably didn't feel like you had any left. Yeah. And it was interesting after, um, you know, after the, the years, because it took about a year for me to complete the book and I had everybody's support. Um, and I told Tom, my ex-husband, I said, I'm, I'm going to lay it all out there just like Lindsay did. And she didn't sugarcoat anything. And there were parts in, in what she wrote that she would put a disclaimer and said, okay, I'm going to talk about um, my the, a vagina right now. Or she's like, I'm going to talk about my, my caboose. So if you don't want to read about it, you better stop reading here. You know, cause she just like was, you know, she laid it all out there about, you know, having constipation and, and having, you know, all the different things that she went through. And I wanted to honor her in that way. I, I'm nowhere near the writer that she was. Oh my gosh. She, I feel like she was so talented and I had help editing after I wrote what I wanted to write and it just came out of me. And then some friends of mine um, who are very, very good at that type of thing um, were very helpful and, and uh, helped me get everything in the correct tense. And I don't, I didn't even know what that meant. Well, you either have to write in, in current tense or post tense or what I'm like, oh, okay you know, stuff like that. But um, so I did want to warn our close family that, you know, I, I was going to lay, lay it out. But, and, and what what happened after that was that, and this was not my intention, was that some of them felt really bad that they didn't do more. They're, they were like, oh my gosh, you know, after I read this, I felt like I should have done more to help or to be there for you or to, you know, whatever. And I'm like, I probably wouldn't have let you anyway, because this is my job. This is what I, you know, as long as I was able to, I had to do it. And Lindsay was so grateful. And I know that she was, I know she was. There was one time during her illness that I wrote about in the book, she didn't mention, but there was a night where she was feeling pretty good. I mean, there were things she liked to do. She liked to go sit in her recliner down in her lower level and watch Wheel of Fortune every night. So I'd get her dinner ready and, you know, put the towel around her. So she'd have a little bib and get her food. And she, you know, would be happy because that's what she liked to do. And at least that was something she could look forward to every day. And that was part of a, a you know, whatever was supposed to be going on that she was lo losing out on um, having sort some structure. I just know that she, although she felt so out of control because 
all of these things that she was in control of were being taken away from her. She, she was okay with that with me. And again, she felt comfortable taking out her anger with me in different ways. Um, but it was, I, I knew she needed to do that. And I gave her that opportunity and I didn't hold it against her or, you know, I just, I explained that I, I told her, I said, I know you feel like you need to take this out and that's good. Go ahead. It's fine. And then later she'd be like, I'm sorry. I was a, a chib to you, mom, which is her B word turned around. She's just the word chib instead of the B I word anyway. <laughs> but then one night she, I don't know what I was doing. If I just got back to her house from our store or if I was making her dinner, or whatever, she went into her bathroom and lit candles and drew a bath and got out this mud mask. She's like, mom, put on this mud mask, go sit in the bathtub and don't do anything or think of anything. <laughs> did you like, do it? Really? Yeah, I did it because I knew she was okay out there by herself without me at that yeah. time. There was a point where I couldn't leave her alone. And, you know, we had to have the, the hospital bed with the side rolls up because she just couldn't even have her balance on her feet. But um, she did that for me. And it was huge, even though it was such a small little thing. It was huge. She appreciated everything I did. And, and again, it, I didn't want any thanks. I didn't want a big display of anything. It was, I knew that's what I needed to do. And I knew that she appreciated it. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts or lessons or nuggets that you would want to share with moms of young daughters who maybe have challenging relationships? I would say just hang in there. <laughs> this too shall pass. Yeah. I have to say once Lindsay got through college and started, or, you know, we became the best friends. And I never in a million years thought we'd ever get to that point. So that meant a lot. Our relationship was so strong and so amazing. That's something that I really missed because I could pick up the phone or text her at any time or um, we both be playing the same game on our phone or something. And we like challenge each other. And I just don't, I don't have that anymore. I mean, there were times where I would close up our, the Grape Life, our store and lounge at 11 at night and be driving home. And I'd call her because I wanted to talk to her before she went to sleep. And again, this is all before she got sick. And even after she got sick, I mean, she still wanted to help with the Grape Life. She loved working there. And, uh, so after she was gone, I mean, I still have her texts on my phone. When I switched to a new phone, I made darn sure that everything transferred over. So I never want to lose those texts. I don't know that I have a voicemail from her, but I have texts and I have a couple of videos so I can hear her voice once in a while. But before her phone got disconnected, I would call it so I could listen to her, her voice. But yeah, don't, don't give up hope that one day you, and especially your daughter, I think the relationships are different between moms and daughters and moms and sons. You may never believe that someday you and your daughter may be best friends, but stick to it. Make sure you're still the parent when they're growing up. You're not their friend. <laughs> you can be their friend when they're older. <laughs> and it does happen. It does. And it's the best thing. What else do you think my listeners should come away with? Um, you know, we, we talked about going to a doctor, recognizing the signs, asking the questions, taking care of yourself. Yeah. Oh gosh. There was a period of time when early in Lindsay's diagnosis, where the doctors tended to talk to me instead of her. And that was, she got pissed. She got mad at me. She got mad at them. So if you have an adult child that's going through some medical issues, make sure that they're getting the acknowledgement and the respect from the medical professionals, because you as a parent might know more about whatever's going on or even have a medical background. So they may tend to talk to you because they get that you're kind of acknowledging what they're saying in these medical terms. But that child who is an adult needs to be able to be acknowledged for who they are and that it's their disease and that they're making the decisions. Um, and there was an, an issue with that during that early period of time, which we quickly create, uh, corrected and made sure that, um, you know, everybody was addressing her directly. Even, I mean, just looking at her and talking to her, um, they would talk to me or ask me questions. And I'm just like, she's right here, talk to her. This is her deal. I'm just here listening. Um, so that was, I think, hard for her. Yeah, I mean, just making sure, especially your daughters, 
know about cancer screenings and prevention and things that you can do to actually prevent certain types of cancers. And also, you know, getting your screenings when you're supposed to. Um, there are guidelines in place for a reason. Now, guidelines go out the window when you suddenly have a family history or you carry a certain gene or you're having some sort of symptoms. But, you know, being an advocate and being a role model in, in doing that as the parent, even when your children are growing up, whether it's a vaccine or whatever it is, whether it's your mammogram or your, your pap smears, um, you know, they know what causes cancer of the cervix. It's the HPV virus. They know that. So the vaccine's out there. If you as a parent choose not to vaccinate your child, that's a decision when they're 11 or 12 years old that you may regret one day down the road and they may blame you for because you did not make sure that happened. That's something that you can do as a parent when your child is growing up. Make sure they are healthy and get those vaccinations that can affect their adult life. Um, yes, uh, mammograms in Lindsay's case wouldn't have mattered. For one thing, this type of cancer does not generally show up in any way, shape, or form on a mammogram, which is a little ironic because that's my job every day is uh, talking about cancer screenings and getting your mammograms and getting your, your annual physicals uh, in a timely manner. Because there are things that could be going on inside your body that you don't know, but will show up on those tests. Um, so be aware of your body. Don't think because you're only 28, you couldn't have um, a life altering event happen with your health. You can. So just always be aware of your health. Diane, I appreciate you. Thank you for dedicating a very difficult hour to me and um, for sharing for sharing this story because you're going to reach a lot of people and I know you're doing that in a lot of different ways. Yep, I am doing it in her memory. And as long as people give me the opportunity to talk about it, I will happily talk about it and won't stop. I know that's what Lindsay would want. How can people find the book? Well, I have it. I always have many copies that I've ordered. Um, otherwise, um, you can get it online through Amazon, amazon.com, uh, Lindsay's Legacy, A Mother's Memories. But you can always reach out to me. Um, I'm on Facebook. I can be reached at my office. You know, I always say my biggest fear is that people will forget about her. So that's probably another reason I do this because I don't want anybody to forget. Thank you so, so much. So again, you can find Lindsay's Legacy, A Mother's Memories, right now on Amazon. The author is Diane Coster, and I thank her so much for sharing Lindsay's story. And I hope you learned a little more about inflammatory breast cancer. And this is your reminder to check on yourself, check your health, get screened if you need to. If something's been nagging you about your health, this is your sign to go talk to a doctor about it. This is On a Mother Level. When it comes to parenthood, we can relate. You have been listening to the WQAD Podcast Network.